Integrated Science of the Absolute Preliminaries 23 Semantic Polyvalence and the Word and its Meaning The transition from the world of cybernetic information to that of semantics is an easy one. In the pure domain of semantics, the word and its meaning cling together inseparably as two coordinated or complementary and reciprocal elements. Treated as information, these two factors have the same status as Kalidas has implied in the very first verse of his epic poem, Raghuvamsha. United as word and meaning, in the interests of proper word meaning, I salute the twin parents of the world, both Parvati and Parmeshwara. These two word aspects cling together as the twin parents of the world, who are Parvati and Parmeshwara, that is Shiva. The Bible in St. John's Gospel says that the Word was God and that all was God. It also speaks of the distinction between the living Word and the dead letter. Semantics is a modern science with very ancient origins, known to be very important in bringing out the full absolutist status of God or reality. We have spoken elsewhere of information and noise as two distinct elements entering into cybernetic control and communication. The same two elements, one vertical and the other horizontal, are distinguishable in semantics. Both are to be treated together on a schematic and nominalistic homogeneous matrix. Thought processes that are so essential in communications should be understood in all their structural and linguistic implications. Linguistics is a subject in which theoreticians can easily be misled and lose themselves in painful and vain labors. This is brought into evidence by the attitude of the Linguistic Society of Paris, who openly discourage any study of the origin of language. They have evidently had enough of this subject to make them turn away from its study because of the fantastic theories generally put forward. But when approached with the structure of language, understood in broad outlines, at least semantics can become a very fruitful and even precise discipline, as it has tended to become in recent years. Many are not able to respect the structural implications of semantics and wander far and wide into sterile bypaths. The origin of language is one of the most difficult theoretical problems that we face. Some, like Ullmann, think in terms of the basic phoneme, a semantic unit of sound, in any one vernacular or language, as when he refers to the 44 or 45 phonemes in the English language. Others analyze gestures and primitive sounds. A great deal of literature of this kind at present has really no real value in our eyes, nor are we interested in finding a new universal language artificially constructed. Any universal language must be based on structural scientific principles, which properly regulate the science of semantics when normalized and understood in its own absolutist context. In the Sanskrit tradition, we have the Panini Darshana, which refers to the central absolutist notion of sphota, the sense of meaning bursting forth as understood by the great grammarian Panini. Word and meaning reside together 
in the most generalized and abstracted form here, and meaning itself is, as the word sphota implies, a bursting forth of a notion with sufficient clarity within consciousness. The syntactical aspects of language involving units of orthography and etymology have been variously considered as contributing synthetically or analytically to this bursting into meaning of words and phrases. The Purva Mimamsa Sutras entered into this subject in great detail in the context of Vedic exegetics under the title of Bhasha Paricheda, the analysis of language, and Vakya Vritti, the functioning of the word. These inquiries are carried over into Vedantic exegetics and even pressed into service for purposes of philosophical criticism by Shankara himself in his famous Bhashyas, commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita and the Brahma Sutras. This is quite justifiable because the Absolute itself may be said to belong to the order of abstraction and generalization to which the word also belongs. The Absolute cannot give up all its proper implications ranging within the limits of an actually objective entity to a most comprehensively abstracted nominalistic notion without itself being reduced for methodological or epistemological purposes to the same order or common status as that of the word where alone matter and mind factors can meet on homogeneous neutral ground. The word is sometimes called a verb because it represents the most living aspect within the syntactical setup of languages. Every verb must have a noun or pronoun as a subject or an object and be related to or be modified by adjectival or adverbial adjuncts or complements with infinitives and prepositions thrown into the bargain in order to make significant meanings emerge from words and phrases. Such meanings can have a fact value, a truth value, or merely a logical value without reference to any outside facts. Syntactics vary from language to language and between the smaller frontiers of vernaculars, giving to the world of linguistic discourse a patchwork appearance of language through frontiers and sub-frontiers in a checkered fashion over covering the globe. Here it is that we have to think of the difficulty of a traveler passing through these patches and finding every time he crosses a frontier having to bear the agony of learning to match words with their corresponding objects. These agonies resemble the tribulations of the schoolroom to which we have referred to in one of our earlier sections. Learning is thus a process involving much trouble and where the schoolmaster's cane is also to be imagined. It takes place altogether within the mind of man and can be thought of only as moving up and down in a pure vertical axis. The agonies of learning are not evident to the eye, except perhaps in the form of school children's tears. It is an inner process and modern linguistics tries to distinguish it by what it calls semiosis. When we travel more internally, in word value, significance, into the domain of general ideas where abstract concepts like that of God become important, 
The tribulation of a person who has to correctly match word and meaning is greater than that of the elementary grades of the schoolroom, where it would suffice to bring together words and their corresponding visible objects. The process of learning where general ideas are grasped is a wide and laborious one, covering the whole range of what is called a liberal education. A man of fully liberal education, in the correct sense of the word, often tends to be a rare human being. The vertical axis implied in the amplitude of his studies is a long one, reaching from vague ideas filled with emotional import only to clearly represented geometrical outlines of a fully public and mathematically valid status. All the intermediate grades belong to the range of this vertical amplitude have been analyzed masterfully by Bergson in the passages already quoted. These passages of Bergson sufficiently indicate for our purposes the broad outlines which must suffice in these preliminary considerations. Thus, so far from our discussions, we can easily recognize two distinct aspects of semantics. One belongs to what is now recognized as the syntax of language, which deals with conventional relations of words where relative pronouns, prepositions, and infinitives are more important than the meaning of verbs. The second refers to deep-seated meanings and admits even of meaning of meanings in the vertical axis where semiotic processes can move up or down. Modern semantics also deals with another horizontal movement much favored by behaviorists and pragmatists who tend to look down with disfavor on anything that does not come within the scope of pragmatic or social utility. Their starting model at the basis of meaningfulness is something they call the handling action, as for example, in a workshop where one mechanic asks his assistant to hand him a spanner or some other tool. This is where communication becomes necessary. Such a communication moves again in the visible horizontal level of practical life. We can imagine yet deeper levels than the pragmatic in the world of word meanings more vaguely and implicitly understood. A horse is able to distinguish a stable from a barn or a bag of oats from one of malt. Although the animal is dumb in respect of the spoken word, the essence of word content may be said to be implicit even at the subliminal level. All we wish to make out in this discussion on semantics, which we have already covered elsewhere in our writings, is to bring out the total structural semantic picture in which, as in the world of information, there are firstly pure vertical factors to be distinguished from their own horizontal counterparts. The more verticalized the meaning is, the more it becomes spiritually significant. And conversely, when horizontalized values are accentuated, language lives and moves merely in the everyday pragmatic and utilitarian world of values. We are also interested in bringing to light the schematic implications which unite semantics and cybernetics, as it affords us an occasion to show how two distinct disciplines can have a unifying factor between them when their epistemology, methodology, and axiology are treated together 
with equal status in view of a unified science. If this is possible, it should also be possible by extrapolation to see the same structural unity between branches of study considered widely divergent at present. We can imagine two Cartesian correlates in the overall structure here as commonly implied between any two disciplines under reference. Pure information and pure meaning with further possibilities of the meaning of meanings would strictly fit into the vertical axis most significant in human life. The same vertical axis understood pluralistically as in monadology can be imagined as capable of being fitted into this overall scheme with smaller unit axes. In the world of atomic entities, where each particular thing is more simply related to its corresponding collective beehive world, matching name and form, as in the schoolroom, innumerable units of such a vertico-horizontal structure could be imagined as covering the surface of the globe, making those patches with linguistic frontiers, which we have tried to describe above. Concepts will meet their corresponding percepts only when this verticalized element is present as a thin and pure correlate in the mind of the adult or child. Thus we come to have a total, though rough, structural representation of the same structural situation in semantics. Let us sum up and say that the syntactics and pragmatics as well as the semiosis where deeper seated instinctive levels of meaning reside, all have to be linked together by one and the same principle of the vertical parameter along which all semantic processes have to be imagined as taking place. It is all important for our present study to reveal the nature of this vertical correlation which if not understood as belonging to the context of the absolute will tend to have no serious human significance. The Panini Darshana thus rightly insists on the principle of Sphota, where the essence of meaning bursts into being as having a fully absolute status.